You're listening to the Child Safeguarding Podcast by Pointing Consulting and Advisory. Welcome back to another episode of the Child Safeguarding Podcast by PCA. Uh, joining me today is my guest, Sky Rose. Sky is the practice leader in the corporate advisory team and heads up the workplace relations team and child safety teams at Moors. Welcome along, Sky. Thanks so much for having me. Not a problem. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, I guess probably just to, to jump in and get started straight away, it's probably helpful if you tell us a little bit more, a little bit about Moors uh, and about the, the work that the firm does uh, over there. Sure. So we, Moors is a, a firm based in Melbourne, um, although we do service clients across Australia. And our, our MO, our, our why is really that we're here for good. So we like to align with values aligned clients mm-hmm. um, to help them achieve really great things out there. So we specialize in particular sectors um, with a focus on education, faith-based organizations, not-for-profits. Um, and child safety is obviously a big part of that. Yeah, yeah, I was really interested in that that um, point of difference, which is very obvious uh, of Moore's having their being a values driven law firm. So I am wondering what that means in practice. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting one to try and explain, but um, I think because we we believe in accountability and integrity, um, we mm-hmm. decline to act for certain clients. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, particularly following the Royal Commission, I think we had to make some really conscious decisions to align ourselves with clients that wanted to achieve great things in child safety that weren't striving yeah. for, you know, the minimum standards, but wanted to yep. be great corporate citizens and have a positive impact on the world. Um, that's been a very conscious decision that we've made. And I think is just one of the ways in which we do that. Yeah, that's awesome. And and there's definitely that that drive from the, the national principles for child safe organisations about best practice rather than... Um, minimum viable product mm. or something. So it's really great to hear that there are uh, law firms out there that are focused on, on that side of things as well. Um, is it a bit of a change of pace to be rejecting clients? Um, oh, well, we seem to have a, an abundance of work. So thankfully, I yep. can say that it doesn't keep me up at night. Yep. Um, I would say, though, that we're, we're really lucky because we work with, with organisations that are really committed to positive social impact Mm-hmm. Um, it makes our lives a lot easier because the the values piece is often there. They want to see, uh, they want to achieve really positive things in the community, and yeah. and our role is to really try and help them get there. It's a real ple- pleasure, actually. Awesome. Uh, so I guess talking specifically about uh, the child safety function of, of Moors, uh, how how does Moors help organisations ensure the protection and safety of children? Um, it's, I guess it's sort of end to end. My, my background is in human rights, um, workplace relations, discrimination mm-hmm. and child safety has only come along um, a bit more re- recently in the last mm. sort of five years or so. Um, the way in which we would assist organisations is starting with prevention. That's um, a place that I really like to play in because yes. we shouldn't just be focusing on the response piece. Um, you know, prevention is key when there is no cure and there certainly mm-hmm. is no cure when we're talking about something like child abuse, it, car- it has a very long tail and can affect people yeah. for a very long time. So um, like you, actually, we spend a lot of time with clients, um, you know, looking at their systems and structures, their policies and procedures, um, mm-hmm. helping them where they've got some gaps um, in that space. But we do a lot of training, face-to-face training as well. Sometimes yep. there's engagement with board and um you know, we'll, we'll often work with the, the senior leaders, making sure that they've got that culture being driven from 
from the top down rather than the mm-hmm. bottom up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the response piece. So because you often, you know, child safety issues will often have a complex privacy and workplace relations element. We work with them on, you know, responding to specific incidents or investigating yep. specific incidents. And then because of my workplace relations background, we'll also advise on, you know, how they should respond to the findings of an investigation, whether it should lead to disciplinary action or, or some other um, proactive measure. Yeah, okay. So that's um, immediately after uh, a very serious allegation or, or something like that has occurred, you're helping them through that responding process in real time as they go through it. Is yeah, that what you mean? Yeah, that's right. So often we'll play a role either behind the scenes or on the record. Yeah. Um, you know, because we work with a lot of schools and faith-based organisations, you know, it'll often materialise in the form of a, a complaint or an allegation that a teacher's engaged in grooming a student or, yep. you know, there's been an assault of a stu- student who's been misbehaving on a school camp um, yep. and then there'll be an invest. The person will be stood down. We'd have obligations to report. Um, in Victoria, there's a reportable conduct scheme. So yes. we'd guide them through that process, help them with the investigation and then mm-hmm. advise them on the response piece afterwards. And then there's usually always some cultural change that's needed at the end. Um, yeah, hopefully. If there are some yeah. <laughs> broader issues that have been identified. Yeah, that's a conversation that I have um, quite frequently, that, that after that sort of process, it's very easy to point to that perpetrator and say, well, them, they, they were the problem mm. and they're gone. So now the problem's gone. Mm. Uh, and although that perpetrator might be gone, they were able to operate in that environment. So there's more than likely there's there's other issues at play that, that still need to be addressed and, and aren't fixed just because that perpetrator is no longer there. Exactly right. And I think if you look at the findings of the Royal Commission, you know, the average time of abuse was 2.2 years in, a, in yeah. an institution. So, yeah. you know, what that says to me is that there were all of these red flags that weren't identified or an organisation just didn't have the the leadership, the systems, structures and screening in place to be able to um, identify and respond to it sooner. Yeah, yeah, and none of that uh, materialises just mm. because they've, they've caught this person and, and disciplined them and terminated their employment and those sorts of things. Yeah, I think that's a, a really valuable service and that's not something that, that um, PCA offer, that coaching through the process, um, but I think it's really valuable because I guess the hope would be that... Um, you know, typically organizations get good at things through experience and the hope would be that you don't need to do this process very frequently. Mm. Um, so getting that out external help to, to really help you through it and make sure you're doing it right is incredibly valuable. Something that I offer in, instead is that critical incident review after all of that. Mm. So once the organization has responded to this, has dealt with it, uh, and, and even if they've got external help to do that, then taking a, a step back and getting someone externally to come in and look at that whole end-to-end process to see how they did respond, what changes they made, if they're effective and those sorts of things to mm-hmm. to make sure that that actual, that, that they have learned those lessons and they are implementing change mm-hmm. from that. And those after-action reviews are just so valuable. I I, I think it's an excellent practice to, to embed mm-hmm. within an organisation um, and a really good idea to re- revisit your policies and procedures and practices and, and also the capabilities of people within your organisation at the end of that. Mm. Most people will be pretty terrified about having to deal with, um, you know, serious concerns or allegations of child abuse and there's so many yep. landmines throughout that response, um, least yeah. of which is not, you know, that, you know, the, the process of conducting an investigation and inviting a child to participate can be really re-traumatising for them. 
And yep. these allegations can be very sticky um, and that can be really concerning where there's a concern but it's not necessarily substantiated. Mm-hmm. So really important to step through that process very mindfully, um, consistent with your obligations. Uh, okay, and then switching to talk uh, about yourself a little bit, you're, you're an award-winning lawyer and a public speaker, uh, but I am wondering what, has, what first attracted you to law and what your main areas of interest are. Mm. Uh, I mean, I feel like such a cliche. I was, I was always really driven to, to have a positive impact in the world and really prioritised pro bono legal work in the early stages yep. of my career. I was really lucky to have a role at Minter Ellison, which is a, um, a global law firm. Um, mm-hmm. But following that, I sort of followed my heart a little bit and moved into public policy, access to justice, human rights, but discrimination law and, um, and human rights and workplace relations were always my kind of, that, that was the, that were the areas that set my heart on fire mm-hmm. because it raises just such an interesting you know, legal and interpersonal issues. You know, there's lots of shades of grey, which I I really enjoy. So I think in terms of my key areas of interest um, professionally, it's definitely discrimination, child safety, workplace relations. Um, And personally, you know, I love to dance when lockdown's not on. I love tennis (laughs) and, um, and gardening. Um, it's certainly not all work and no play down here in Melbourne when restrictions aren't on. Yeah, we're often fed that very um, sort of work orientated that it's all it's all billable hours and lawyers are, are working from from you know six a.m. through to about ten p.m. at night sort of thing. So it is nice to hear that you have other interests outside of outside of the law firm as well. Yeah, oh, well, it's genuinely such a lovely place to work. I feel like I've reached professional nirvana where you get yep. to do what you love and have a positive impact. You get your, your heart fix, you know, your altruistic fix, mm-hmm. and you get to work with good people and good clients. So um, it's it's really lovely to have reached that point at this stage. The, it must be all downhill from here, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I feel like I should mention that there's probably a, a vacancies or a, a careers web um, site on, on your page on your... Oh, I haven't spoken very well. There's probably a careers web page there on the Moors website that people might want to check out. It's yeah. sounding wonderful. <laughs> no, it is really good. I'm very lucky. Uh, and, you, and you've already sort of alluded to it a little bit there, but I did notice on your, your LinkedIn profile that you've spent some time as a as a consultant for the Cambodian League for the Promotion of Defence of Human Rights. So yes. I'm, I'm really keen if you can tell us uh, a bit about that experience, about that what that was like and about mm. what motivated you to take up a role in Cambodia. Yeah, it's a bit of a tongue twister, that one, isn't it? Um, it's hard to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's Licardo for short. Um, uh, which is, okay. Yeah, which is, I think it's the second largest human rights NGO in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that point I was undertaking my master's in international law and I was really committed to working in, in human rights. I, you know, this is just before I worked at the Human Rights Commission and Victoria Legal Aid mm-hmm. and decided that I needed to broaden my horizons and um, I guess, you know, deepen my knowledge of what human rights looked like in a, in a developing country. And, you know, that placement was incredibly eye-opening. Like they worked on mm. prisoners' rights and land rights, children's rights um, and women's rights. And, you know, we, my, my organisation was attending prisons and inspecting for minimum standards of detention. Mm-hmm. You know, there was liaison with UN rapporteurs. Um, but I think probably one of the most eye-opening issues there was 
what happened in relation to children in prisons because there is unbelievable corruption in Cambodia and lots of children, if, if their mothers are taken into to custody and sent to prison, a lot of the time they've got nowhere else that's safe for them to go. Yeah. So when yeah. we would be inspecting the prisons, um, you know, I, I saw many children up to the age of eight that were actually living there with their mothers with no additional food rations, couldn't speak, oh, wow. no education. Yeah. And so that was, that was unbelievably heartbreaking for me um, mm. and for anyone really that was observing just how, um, how affected they were by being incarcerated pretty much for their whole life. And I think that's, that kind of led me into the child safety space as well. Mm, wow. And that's, that's an, I'm assuming those, those children are effectively incarcerated um, because of, of the, the situation their mother is in, not because of, exactly. of anything they've, they've been charged with, mm-hmm. with crimes at, at that young age or anything like that. Mm. Um, and I, um, I guess linking back to Australia where we're having a, a, just a public discussion at the moment about raising the age of uh, criminal culpability yeah. here. Um, and people would probably be aware that I think it's every state and territory around Australia that uh, once children are 10, they can be charged with crimes and they can be incarcerated, which is is not in line with world standards either. And um, something that we don't uh, is, is not looked upon very favorably by the UN when mm. it comes time for us to talk about how we're meeting our obligations under the United Nations Conventions on the Rights of the Child. Mm. And I would not very boldly, I would suggest quite rightly, we should be um, judged quite harshly for that. Um, but this is a bit of a different situation where there's there's not even a, an allegation that those children have done anything wrong. No, yeah. I mean, there are, it doesn't get a lot right, um, but there were some unbelievably committed people that were there that were really flying the flag for human rights despite the um, very challenging circumstances that they found themselves in. Yeah, awesome. And then obviously back back over to Australia uh, and, and now working with Moors to, to keep children safe in organisations, um, which is an awful, awful segue into switching gears <laughs> switching <laughs> uh, into, I guess, the, the next thing that I did want to talk to you about. Um, and I, I, was, I was hoping to talk about good governance around child safety in organisations uh, and in particular about getting leaders on board with embedding the, the child safe principles and becoming a child safe organisation. Uh, so I often have people tell me that although preventing child abuse and neglect is important uh, in their organisation, that it's not actually a risk at their organisation, that their staff wouldn't do something like that, or they know their people, or, or you know, a similar sort of belief to that. Um, and I hear this from leaders of organisations, I hear it from people in sort of middle management, and I also hear it from frontline staff as well. Um, and I, I guess I also hear it more positioned as a, as a complaint from people in child safety roles within organisations. Uh, and sort of part of that is that their ability to achieve the the outcomes that they're looking for is really limited uh, because leadership don't don't believe that the risk of child abuse within the organisation is real or, or is actually a serious one. So quite a long lead in there. Um, so I guess what, what do you say to when you hear people in leadership roles of child-serving organisations say that child harm won't happen within their organisation? I think that is one of the most dangerous misconceptions there is in the child safety space. And, mm. you know, to those people I would say, have you read the paper in the last, yeah. in the last you know, century? What we mm. know from the Royal Commission in particular is that, you know, these are our trusted institutions and they have systemically and regularly failed children. 
people in positions of power that were were, were revered, trusted, mm-hmm. very well liked within their institutions. We know they some of them have gone on to abuse, and I think that there's a real um, there's not it's not ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is ignorance, and so I think if you assume that it can't be happening in your backyard then your guard is already down and you're doing children a real disservice. You do need layers of um, systems and structures and safeguards in place to make sure that there's nothing that can slip through the cracks. And so to them, I would say read the Royal Commission's report or read the paper because there's no shortage of examples of very well-liked people um, who have done some really unthinkable things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's for me, it's one of those red flags that the the kind of organization where where I think this sort of thing is most likely to occur is is in organizations where there's a strong belief that it won't happen within there. And, and the simple reason for that is that it's very difficult to find things that you're not looking for. Uh, and that's that's something that, that dedicated perpetrators will actively exploit. Mm, I went and did a, um, a, a ran a workshop recently for um, a very well known faith-based organisation and one of the questions that we asked through this anonymous chat was um, whether people would report concerns of child abuse Mm -hmm. if the concerns related to um, a member of the leadership team, um, Mm -hmm. a person that they know, they they care about and that they trust and Mm -hmm. what was staggering was that 30% of them said no. And this is an organisation that already invests heavily in child safety and was a real eye-opener for me that there's Mm. a lot that we need to do to get people to think think more carefully around the the comments that they're making and the safeguards that they've got in place. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I guess going going off the the research and the evidence base here and and just putting forward sort of a personal uh, opinion, uh, from the interactions that I have with, with a, a lot of people that have that sort of similar view of um, that, that, you know, the people that I work with wouldn't do that um, on that sort of individual level. I do get a sense from a, from a lot of people that they that they see themselves as good people and they probably are, I'm not trying to suggest they're not. Um, but part of what makes them a good person is is that they associate with other good people. They're friends with good-natured people and none of their friends would do something like that to a child. Uh, and... If one of their friends did, well, what does that say about about them? That they'd know someone like that, that they'd associate with someone like that, and obviously that's part of that grooming process um, for that perpetrator. It's but funny it, the it role does... that ego plays in that, isn't it? You know. Yeah, definitely. Mm. People like me, people like me I, wouldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't want to. Well, it's yeah, getting going a bit further, but um, uh, it wouldn't happen because I wouldn't be friends with someone like that, and so it just couldn't happen. Um. And, and we're all being groomed. It's not just the children in that experience that are being groomed. It's everyone around them as well. Mm, very true. Uh, so I guess from, from your experience at, at Moores, and, and let's keep things general, uh, what sort of things can go wrong if leadership play down that risk of child harm and do not actively champion a child-safe culture? Well, I think if you're not sending, if you're not setting the right message at the top, then people won't have confidence um, or comfort in coming forward with any concerns, which means you won't have a speak up culture, and mm-hmm. things will slip through the cracks. Um, I can probably speak to an example. Recently, we had to advise a school board 
um, and a school on concerns that a counsellor had reported to the police and Mm -hmm. um, the Department of Health and Human Services down here. Yep. The counsellor had um, observed pretty serious physical markings on a child's body and when pushed, the, the child disclosed that, um, you know, the, the, his father had beaten him. Mm-hmm. And what was really interesting here is that the board found out about it and intervened and sought to discipline the counsellor and to say, wow. we don't interfere in matters of the, of the home and it's, it's a parent's prerogative to discipline their child. That's a, you know, it's reasonable discipline is, is okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and tried to justify it. And so that was pretty alarming, obviously. And I think yeah. stuff like that can just send such a dangerous message to people who are trying to look after children. It says you better not speak up because your job could be in jeopardy and then you're going to be attracting the wrong people to the organisation. Mm, definitely. Um, yeah, when, I, when I'm delivering training around uh, child protection and, and, and mandatory reporting in particular and those sorts of things, um, I always try to be really clear that, uh, you know, nothing in the training that I'm delivering in that moment, hopefully nothing in their policies or procedures um, that they go through uh, and nothing about the way they're sort of managed should prevent them from making a report to, to the child protection agency if they think that's what needs to happen. Mm, uh, absolutely. And try to be sort of as, as crystal clear as I can be with that. Yeah, we're not the gatekeepers of information. You should never discourage someone from making a report. Um, ultimately, it's up to whether they formed a reasonable belief that it's necessary to do so. And yeah. most people will be guided by, you know, their conscience. So what will keep them up at night? If I don't make this report, will I be able to live with it if something mm-hmm. could have come of it? Yeah. Um, wow, that's really, con- It's I guess, not not surprising, but it's it's still incredibly concerning to, to hear a particular example like that. Uh, I do want to jump back to, to just a little phrase you used uh, a couple of minutes ago. You said that encouraging a speak-up culture. Mm. Um, so I, if you can, I guess, dive into that a little bit deeper and explain what you mean there, that might be useful for people. Yeah, sure. So, I, I mean, it's a bit of a buzzword at the moment. You hear it in the context of sort of bystander support for sexual harm. I think mm-hmm. it's it's applicable across the board, though, whether you're talking about whistleblowing, bullying, child abuse. If you've got a culture where people feel comfortable raising their hand saying this doesn't feel right for me or right to me or this is what I've seen, this is what I've heard, I'm concerned about it and they know that they're going to be taken seriously, it'll Mm -hmm. be looked into quickly Mm -hmm. and effectively and that the loop will be closed, like the issue will be resolved um, or investigated, then that creates a lot of confidence that people, it has a bit of a a flow-on effect. The more people that speak up, the more likely other people are to speak up when there's an issue. And I think yeah. when you do audits, you would have seen this, Brad, but when you do audits of an organisation, probably one of the most concerning things is that they've had no reports or complaints at all. Mm-hmm. It actually says most of the time that there's not that culture where people feel comfortable coming forward, even if yeah. it's a little issue. Yeah, uh, and then I'll just add to, to that as well um, about being safe, being kept safe during that process that if staff don't feel safe, that they're going to be looked after. Um, if they do raise serious concerns, then they're obviously not going to raise those concerns. Mm. Uh, and that's one of those things around creating that child-safe culture where, um, you know, let's let's stop focusing on children for a minute and let's just focus on your staff. Are you actually supporting your staff and keeping your staff safe? Because if they're not safe, then they're really impaired in their ability to keep other people safe mm. as well. 
So do you have any advice for how people can can challenge those sorts of views within their organization if they are coming up um, against that sort of resistance? Mm, I think that's actually one of the hardest if it's if the resistance sits with people in leadership positions and I think Mm -hmm. I mean if it's a really hard one to answer if I'm frank because if you don't have good policies and procedures in place there's no ability for an individual to jump past that leader to the board and escalate Mm -hmm. issues then probably what's going to happen is that that person will leave Um, Mm -hmm. So what can you do? I think you can just be really clear about external avenues that people can go to so that the issue is at the very least picked up by external agencies. Yep. You know, training and trying to embed a culture through training, I think, is also really crucial. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and you've touched on a really good point there about those that ability to, get, um, I guess, get to the board if that's what needs to happen. Um, we, sometimes we see in organisations that there's, there's a very linear line uh, of that sort of management process and there's, there's very rigid rules around stepping outside of that, um, which can, can create significant issues. Um, off the top of my head, I think that's case study one from the Royal Commission really examined um, that particular issue where, where everyone that worked within the organisation was isolated from the board and they needed to go to, through the, the CEO of the, um, the agency there to, to get any information through to the board. And it was the CEO that was uh, abusing uh, children uh, within that organisation and they had a very rigid control over that board as well. Um, so I, I think that's often a really valuable thing to, to make sure organizations have is that, sure, we've got a, a, a linear structure for, for our, our regular reporting, um, but we have created the, the right avenues and conditions that people can um, move around those sorts of obstacles if they need to. And anyone within the organization has that ability to actually get in contact with the board if there was a need to do that. Mm. I think in the context of whistleblowing reforms more recently as well, lots mm. of organizations, larger organizations in particular, are using external whistleblowing providers. Yeah. And, you know, it is possible to raise child safety concerns through that process and to get that protection. So yeah. I'm starting to see more people funnel their concerns through whistleblowing um, agencies and external providers mm. to, to ensure that they've got the protection that they need from, from victimisation for raising the complaint. Yeah, and, and that doesn't have to be a hugely expensive option for organisations no. either. There, there's, As you mentioned, there's organisations that specialise in doing that. It, it can it can be an expensive option for people, uh, but for smaller organisations, it's not an option that's that's off the table. There are other ways that they could look at doing that as well. Yeah, awesome. Uh, but let's let's talk about the board then. So, um, how can people get leaders, and I guess in particular those board members, on board with being a child safe organisation? Um, I think it starts with the question of what kind of organisation do you want to be, and what do you stand for, and mm-hmm. You know, if if the response that you're getting is um, profit over people or reputation over people, then that indicates that there are some pretty significant cultural issues that would need to be addressed yeah. before you can get them on board. Um, I think a lot of the time, board members, it's not so in, in my experience, it's not so much that um, board members don't believe in child safety, but they just don't really understand what influence role. Um, or role they could actually play in that space in a meaningful mm-hmm. way and what their objectives are and responsibilities are in setting that 
strategic direction to ensure the safety of children that they their organisation comes into contact with. It actually is really relevant to a lot of their director's duties and, mm-hmm. you know, when you're on a board, you're setting the strategic direction, you'll have to be reviewing those policies and procedures and determining, you know, at a high level whether or not the organisation's complying with its obligations. So when there's that lack of engagement, most of the time I think it's because um, they're just not aware of their their obligations and the the real risks. Board members mm-hmm. will often be looking at risks through a narrow lens of what are the financial risks here or the health yeah. and safety risks or what are my personal obligations as a as a director rather than you know what are the what are the risks to the people that we serve that we care for um, and I think you know over time that will change but we need to embed child safety on their agendas in the same way that we do you know financial risks and health and safety risks. Mm, definitely, uh, and uh, keeping on that that idea of risk for them for a moment, uh, I guess depending what the organisation is and, and, and what they do, the sector they work in, and, and where in Australia they operate, and those sorts of things. There's lots of lots of asterisks to it. I guess what I'm about to say, yeah. um, but in, in some cases, board members can actually hold personal liability uh, if uh, things like uh, particularly around child sexual abuse occurring within the organisation if they haven't been adequately um, addressing that risk and putting mm-hmm. um, practical steps in place to prevent it. Um, and I guess speaking with a lawyer, that's that's true, isn't it, yeah. <laughs> in some cases? Yeah, it is. I mean, in Victoria, for example, um, no, there's an offence regarding the failure to report child abuse mm-hmm. and the failure to protect a person from child abuse. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the focus is really on um, people in positions of power um, not taking steps to, to mitigate those risks where they're in a mm. position to sort of change them. And I think, you know, those laws were introduced for a reason. You will have seen yep. Spotlight. We've seen what yep. happened with various members of, of particular faith-based organisations being sort of, you know, accused of child abuse and just moved to another part of the organisation. Mm-hmm. Boards absolutely play a role in preventing that sort of thing from happening. Mm. Definitely. Um, yeah, if people haven't seen Spotlight, it's it's definitely worth worth the time to watch uh, to get a bit of an insight and then I guess put, apply that, that critical lens and take a step back and say, well, th- this is looking at that one um, specific issue in, in Boston and, and uh, that one particular church, but um, it's by no means an exclusive issue that just affected, uh, that was just affecting that particular city or that particular faith-based organisation. It's, um, it, it's everywhere. And as we saw from the Royal Commission, uh, over uh, over four thousand organisations were named throughout uh, throughout that process, just in Australia as well. Um, and then, do, do you think it's important for boards to have a specific, uh, I, I guess, um, chair or, or portfolio or something specifically around child safety if they are in fact a, a, a an organisation that providing services to children? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we'll often see various subcommittees looking Mm -hmm. at health and safety or child safety. It really depends on the size of the organisation and the extent to which they have conduct with children. Sometimes they'll just want various child safety officers to be part of a committee and feed that information up to the board. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't actually think that there's a one-size-fits-all model that's appropriate It'll yeah. be determined by things like, you know, what are the issues that have popped up for this organisation in the past? How deep are those cultural concerns? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are the risks to children by virtue of the services that they provide? 
Mm. Um, there's greater risks and greater regulation in the context of, of schools, for example, that mean that they're held to a higher standard, really. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you mentioned there about um, Mike's be receiving those reports about child safety. And I, I think that's one of those very simple, very practical things that um, that organisations can implement if they haven't already. If the board isn't regularly receiving as, as part of whatever that existing process is, mm. if they're not regularly receiving updates about um, child safety incidents, uh, about the, the progress of active investigations, about complaints that are being made uh, about child safety and, and those sorts of things, um, then their ability to actually um, drive that from from the top down, that child safe culture, is really impaired because mm. they're 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 not aware of of what's happening in the organisation in relation to those things. Exactly, and I think that there sometimes that arises because there haven't been clear delegations or expectations mm. provided to management about the reports that they need to see. So it's yeah. not it's it's rarely appropriate for board members to know the the identity of the individuals that. Sure, that it yeah. pertains to, but they need to know, you know, that there was an issue, how serious mm-hmm. it was, what the risks mm-hmm. are for the organisation and what the response has been so that they can assess it. Yep. And then for uh, organisations in states that have a reportable conduct scheme mm-hmm. like Victoria, um, New South Wales, the, the longest running ACT, um, at, the, at the point of releasing this podcast, those were the ones that had that. Uh, that should be a fairly easy thing to implement if uh, if it's not already in place because there, there is a lot of uh, compliance around meeting the obligations under those reportable conduct mm-hmm. schemes. So it should be fairly easy for organisations to then convert that into, into that report going up to the board. Uh, and probably organisations in other states, if they're not familiar with reportable conduct schemes, should probably... Uh, devote a bit of time to looking into into what is happening in those other states where they do exist because the recommendation from the Royal Commission was that every state and territory should have one uh, and there has been a lot of, of movement and consultation and those sorts of things in, in most states. So um, probably more than likely uh, people can expect that at some point in the future their organisation will, will probably come under the purview of a reportable conduct scheme no matter what state they're in. Yeah, and they don't make it easy because they're different in every state, but... Very true, yes. Yeah, really hard for national organisations. <laughs> yeah, and it seems every time a new one comes on board, the um, the timeframes to provide information through seem to get a bit shorter as well. So it's really um, putting a lot of expectation on organisations, um, which is one of the reasons why I do suggest organisations are, are familiar with them um, before they, they're legally required to comply with yeah. one. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and I guess that, that's sort of linking into some of the, the next questions I had around uh, what are some of those those absolute basic things that leaders of child-serving organisations must be doing uh, to be able to claim that they are keeping children safe from the risk of harm? Um, oh, I think we need to be guided by the national child-safe principles and in Victoria, the, the child-safe standards. So, I don't think it's a tick-the-box exercise and I'm always loath to say, oh, if you do this, then that's the minimum. Um, yep, that makes because sense. Because yeah. there's so many different ways that you need to look at it. You know, you'll be aware from the child safe principles and child safe standards that, you know, you obviously need leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, you need really comprehensive screening um, and recruitment practices that are embedded mm-hmm. across the organisation consistently. Yeah. You also need um, to engage with children because there's no point in just telling adults what their expectations are uh, and where to go if they've got a concern. If you're not communicating this also to children, you're really missing a pretty fundamental opportunity to engage with them on 
um, you know, when they don't feel safe, where they can turn if they don't feel safe. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I'm just struggling to think of the, the name of it at the moment, but there was a, a really good report um, as part of the Royal Commission from from Tim Moore and, um, and Morag MacArthur around uh, involving the voices of children in, uh, in keeping children safe within organisations. And the, the title just... It just eludes me at the moment, but what I'll do uh, is in the notes uh, for the for the podcast. I'll, I'll do the research and, and make sure I put the, a link through to find that report if people do want to um, learn more about uh, involving children and, and the, uh, involving children in keeping children safe within the organisation, about child participation and hearing the voices of children. Mm, yeah, that empowerment uh, of children piece, I think, is probably a low-hanging fruit and probably mm. the thing that organisations find hardest to do to mm-hmm. create an environment and to deliver age-appropriate information to children on what's okay, what's not okay, and where they can turn if they need help. Yeah. Um, you know, the risk management strategies and clear policies and procedures on responding to abuse is also critical to mm-hmm. um, to organisations having that child-safe culture. Um, and, of course, if you're talking about the leadership, not just having a statement of commitment, but making sure that people at all levels of the organisation are you know, singing from the same hymn sheet, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and I, I think a really good place for organisations to start uh, looking at this uh, this sort of thing is just to jump onto the uh, Human Australian Human Rights Commission's Child Safe website and grabbing the uh, Child Safe Organisations Audit. Uh, they've got a, a template there, which is a very, very simple tool for organisations to go through and um, and do that sort of stock take of where they're at at the moment. Uh, and start to think about these things from that child safe perspective. Um, <clears throat> and Moore says, has partnered with our community and the Institute of Community Directors Australia, and they've pub- and you've all published together um, a child safety toolkit. So could you tell people more about that toolkit, please? Yeah, sure. So. Um, it was released a few years ago now and there have been a few editions, but, mm. you know, we recognised when the Royal Commission was unfolding just how many organisations um, had woeful practices when it came to yep. child safety and that there was an immediate need to provide pro bono resources for organisations out there to help them get their house in order, or at least make a solid start on mm-hmm. creating that child safe culture and trying to you know, right the wrongs of the past. And I'm when yeah. I talk about right the wrongs, I'm just talking about the practices that they had rather than the crimes that were committed. Sure. Yeah. So that resource um, contained codes of conduct and policies and procedures and was really aligned with the child safe standards that had been introduced in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea was that organisations with limited resources could use that as a solid start to think about all elements of their organisation and Mm -hmm. to develop a bit of an action plan. Um, You know, we've come a long way since then, actually, and I think that, you know, we we had hoped that in the next six months that we'd have a further addition to release. There's there's no shortage of updates um, that we'll need to embed within it, so stay tuned on that one. Oh, excellent. It's it's nice to hear that's I, I have seen there's been a few um, revisions and updates and it's really nice to hear that that is going to continue because uh, like you said, it is a, a free resource that's available um, through I think through all of the, the websites for for those for you from mm-hmm. Moore's directly uh, from our community and uh, from oh, I've lost it. I'm going to cut this bit out Ikta. so it seems seamless. Uh, the Institute of Community Directors Australia. Sorry, what, what did you call it? Ikta. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, another great resource that if, if people aren't familiar with, I definitely recommend um, checking that out. And, and like you said, they're really aimed at those organizations with, with limited um, budgets, um, but still a, a definitive need to do this sort of work as well. And it's a great starting point. Definitely. All right, so as we start to close out, um, I tend to end the podcast by asking every guest the same two questions. Uh, and as the podcast continues, I'm hoping that we'll be building up quite a lot of advice and information which listeners can find useful. Uh, so the first question that I ask is, if you could share one piece of advice or knowledge for organizations which are only just beginning their child safe organization's journey, what would it be? And I guess just to review, release a bit of pressure there, it doesn't have to be the, the best or the most important thing. Um, just one thing that you recognize from your perspective as, as being um, as being relevant and necessary. Mm. I think it can be really daunting when you're starting out if you've got nothing in place at all. So mm -hmm. I would say focus on the fact that prevention is key when there is no cure mm -hmm. and to, to child abuse. And it doesn't need to be perfect the first time because you will embed continual improvements within your systems and structures. So don't focus on getting it perfect. Yeah. Um, you just need to start and, every, you, you know, you can continue to build on the safeguards that you've got in place. Yeah, awesome. It's a really nice practical piece of advice there that um, often we can let perfection um, prevent uh, something from, from being released, like from being good enough to be released sort of thing. So um, there's a proper phrase there that I've absolutely butchered um, <laughs> through that process. Um, but yeah, a really practical piece of advice. I think that's nice. Okay, awesome. And what about parents and carers? Uh, what do you think is important for parents and carers to know about keeping children safe in organisations and institutions? Oh, I think probably the biggest challenge and opportunity for parents and carers is the way in which technology and social media apps are being used um, by children and mm -hmm. against children and so mm -hmm. having um, I'm not just talking about you know having controls in place to prevent their children from um, engaging in certain online activities it's almost inevitable that they will at some point yep. um, social media use is is prolific so I would be saying make sure you're aware of the apps the um, the e-safety commission has got some outstanding materials for parents carers and organizations on online safety so I would start mm -hmm. there the way mm -hmm. in which new apps are being used um, for grooming but also sexting between students um, or children um, is something that parents need to be across. And so mm -hmm. I think a good starting point is by being open and honest with your children, um, asking open questions without judgment yep. and providing them with information and support if, if they, um, if they you know, get themselves in trouble. Mm. So that I think is a, a real opportunity and challenge for parents. Yeah, definitely, and I think doing that, doing that early, mm. uh, to to normalise that, so that uh, as as the children grow up into those um, preteen and teenage years, that those those conversations with parents are, are quite normal because they've been happening for years, rather than needing to awkwardly strike them up for the first time um, after after children have been spending quite a bit of time online. Mm. Excellent, thank you very much. Um, so, Sky, if people would uh, want to learn more about Moors and keeping children safe, what is the best way that they can do that? And, and how can they get in contact with you or with Moors? Yeah, sure. So all of the all of my details are on the website, but it's um, 
easiest to catch me by email, srose at moors.com.au. Mm-hmm. Um, and my phone number's up there as well. Um, and really appreciate talking you today. talking to you today. It's been great. Yeah, awesome. Thank you very much. It, uh, it, it's been really good. So thank you for being my guest today, Sky Rose, practice leader in the corporate advisory team at Moors. So if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate it five stars and share it with your peers. Doing that will help make sure that PCA keep making it. Uh, and if you would like to be a guest on a future episode, uh, visit childsafeguardingpodcast.com to send us a message. And thank you for joining me on the Child Safeguarding Podcast. I'm Brad Pointing, Principal Consultant for Pointing Consulting and Advisory, PCA. And you can connect with me on LinkedIn by searching Bradley Pointing and following PCA on Twitter at PointingCNA. And all of the details for that are in the notes for this podcast. Thanks, everyone. We'll catch you next time.